Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Job asked a great question in Job 14, 14. He said, if a man dies, will he live again? And every thinking human being who has ever lived has struggled with that same question. In fact, some people have tried to ensure that they're going to live again. Came across a company this week called Eternal Preservation Incorporated. They claim that their process and formula of formaldehyde and other chemicals can preserve a body forever. Organs, skin, hair, skeleton. In fact, they dip you in this stuff for 24 hours. And then they will set your body in whatever shape you want it in. Have your legs crossed. guess in some countries you could sit in your living room forever. You'll look just as good 3,000 years from now as you do the day you die. The American Cryonic Society will freeze your body. They don't call it freezing. They call it low-temperature coma. But you're dead. They will freeze your body for anywhere from $28,000 to $150,000. I wasn't real clear on what the difference is except that maybe with $150,000, you get a backup generator. So if you want to just freeze your brain or your head, you have to call for the current prices. The sales pitch is that they will freeze your body and that medicine, maybe down the road somewhere, will figure out a way to bring you back to life. Well, let me tell you something. God has a better plan. It's the resurrection plan. And it's a group plan. It involves every believer in Christ. Now, the Corinthians had a problem with this question. If a man dies, will he live again? They were saying, well, no, a man can't live again. And so Paul writes this 15th chapter to address the subject of resurrection. In the first 11 verses, he says, You already believe in a bodily resurrection because it's part of the gospel. You believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And then in verses 12 to 19, as we saw last week, he gives the hypothetical. What if you're right? What if nobody rises from the dead? Well, if nobody rises from the dead, then Christ didn't rise from the dead. And if Christ didn't rise from the dead then our preaching is worthless, your faith is worthless, the apostles are liars, you're still in your sins, everyone who died in Christ has perished, and we are the most pitiful people in the world. But then we come to verse 20, and he says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. Let's go from the hypothetical to the real. Christ has risen. And in the following verses that we're going to look at this morning, verses 20 to 28, he presents to us God's resurrection plan. We as believers will all rise because we are inseparably linked 
to Jesus Christ. Christ is in me. I am in Christ. And so his resurrection is the assurance of my resurrection. Because he rose, we will rise. Now, I want to look at this in two parts, and I've listed that in your bulletin. The first is what Christ's resurrection means to us. And then secondly, we're going to see what our resurrection means to Christ. First of all, what Christ's resurrection means to us. Look at verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now, when he says those who are asleep, he's not talking about the fellow snoring next to you. He talks about those who are asleep. He's talking about Christians who have died. He used that same phrase back in verse 6 when he said that Christ appeared to more than 500 people. Some of them are asleep. Some of them have died in Christ. You see, Christians don't die. They sleep because it's temporary. And Christ rose as the first fruits of that group, Christians who are in the ground. Now, what are first fruits? Well, the first fruits were the first part of the crop that was ready for harvest. Now, today, with all the equipment we've got, the machinery we've got, the technology that we've got, a farmer can plant acres of land in one day. And he can harvest acres of land in one day. But in that day, they didn't have that kind of equipment. So a farmer went out with his bag of seed, and he planted his seed. And he started in this part of the field, and he worked across the field, and he covered all of his land. Well, when the harvest came in, you can understand that one one part of the field was ahead of the other part of the field. One part of the field came in to harvest first, while the other part was still growing. And the first fruits were this first part of the field. He would take that first part of the field, the first part of the crop, and he was to offer it to the Lord. Now, that's different than our plan would be. Our plan would be we want to get all the harvest into the barn, and if there's anything left over, God will give it to you. God says, I want the very first. I want the best given to me. And when when a farmer gave that first part to God, he was really trusting God that God was going to bring in the rest of the harvest. You see, it was a risky thing to give him the first fruits because who knows, a storm might come and destroy the crops. A drought might start and it may never grow in. And so it's an act of faith to say, God, I'm going to give you the first fruits. So the first fruits were presented to the Lord, and the first fruits were a symbol or a sign that the rest of the crop was coming. Jesus is the first fruits of resurrection. And if you go back and look in Leviticus chapter 23, you know what day they had the feast of first fruits? You know what day they offered up the first fruits to God? It was done on the first day of the week after Passover. You know what day Jesus rose from the dead? Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week after Passover. When all over Israel, farmers were offering their first fruits to God, Jesus rose on that same day as the first fruits of our resurrection. 
And it is a group plan. Jesus is part of the harvest. We are linked to him. You see, Jesus didn't grow up in isolation. He didn't grow up in a little garden all to itself. He didn't grow up in a greenhouse somewhere. He is part of this whole harvest, which includes you and me, and he is the first fruits. Jesus said in John 12, 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. A seed goes into the ground and it dies, and it springs up into life. It's offered as the first fruits for the guarantee that the rest of the seed will go into the ground, die, and spring up into life. Jesus died in our place, went into the ground, sprang up in life as the first fruits, guaranteeing that you and I will rise as well. Because he lives, we will live also. You say, first fruits, does that mean that Christ was the first to ever rise from the dead? Well, obviously not. There were other people in Scripture who rose before Jesus. Elijah raised a young boy to life. Elisha raised a young boy to life. Jesus himself raised at least three people to life. Jairus' daughter, the son of the widow of Nain, and Lazarus. But the distinction is the kind of resurrection that it was. You see, Lazarus and the others rose to die again. They rose simply back into their original bodies, and they eventually died again. Jesus rose from the dead never to die again. Jesus rose in a glorified body, and in that sense, his resurrection is something altogether new. It is unique. He is the first fruits, the guarantee of an eternal harvest. And notice again how he describes the harvest in verse 20. Those who are asleep, that is Christians. Other people die, Christians sleep. Now some cults have misused this idea and they've presented the idea of soul sleep. Their idea of soul sleep is that when you die, your soul sleeps. No thoughts, no consciousness, Nothing until the resurrection. But the Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, in the very next book, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, Paul says, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. In Philippians 1, 23, Paul says, I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. You see, when a Christian dies, his spirit goes immediately into the presence of the Lord. His body goes into the ground, sleeping, awaiting his wake-up call. And that day will come when you get your wake-up call because Christ has already risen as the first fruits of our resurrection. You say, well, Dan, I, I don't understand how one person... The resurrection of one person can affect everybody who ever believed in Christ. I don't understand how his one resurrection can affect everybody who ever died in Christ. How can the resurrection of one man have so much impact on all the other people? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Because Paul's going to answer it in verses 21 and 22. Notice verse 21. 
For since by a man came death, by a man also comes the resurrection of the dead. Why is it that everybody dies? We all die because one man, Adam, chose to sin. And God said, in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Adam sinned, Adam died, and everybody else since Adam dies. Why? Because we were all in the loins of Adam. When Adam sinned, mankind fell. Now, this is an analogy that Paul develops in more detail in Romans chapter 5. But 1 Corinthians was written before Romans. So this is the first use of this analogy. Adam was the representative of us all. When he sinned, we all sinned. And when he sinned, the death principle came upon us all. Now let me make a point out of that. This is important for you to understand. We are born as sinners. When I am one day old, I am a sinner. You see, you don't become a sinner by sinning. You sin because you are a sinner. That's why one of the first words that your little child is going to say is mine. You didn't have to train your child to say that. It comes naturally because he or she has a sin nature. You put two kids in one toy in a room, and you're going to find out that they're sinners. They don't sit there and go, no, you use it. See, your sin doesn't make you a sinner. Your sin proves that you're a sinner. When Adam sinned, we all sinned in Adam. He was our representative. And we are born with that sin nature, and it displays itself in our life. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, don't fight it too much. I mean, if we'd put you in the garden, guess what? You would have fallen. If you had represented yourself, you would have fallen. It's just he was our representative, and he failed, and we all failed with him. You see, the one act of one man at one time in one place at one point in history affected every human being who has ever lived. Now, If one man can do one thing and cause death to pass on all men, then why can't one other man do one other thing and cause life to pass on all men? You see, that's Paul's point. Look at verse 22. For uh, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. In Adam all die. In Christ, all live. Now, you don't have a problem with all people dying, do you? I mean, have you run into anybody lately from the 16th century? Doesn't happen. Our world is potmarked with gravestones reminding us that everybody dies. You see, in Adam, we inherit his sin. It's just like somebody says to you, you have your father's eyes. Well, you have your father Adam's sin. And because you inherited his sin, you get death. The other side of that is that in Christ, we inherit his righteousness. 
And because we have his righteousness, we all live. Now, verse 22 has troubled some people because some people take this verse and take the alls in this verse to be universal. They take it to say, all die, all will rise. They say, therefore, everybody gets saved. That's what's called universalism. Well, we know from other scriptures that everybody isn't going to get saved. In fact, Jesus said, the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. You say, well, what what does Paul mean here when he says, by one man all die, and by another man all will be made alive? We have to look carefully to notice that those who are included in the all depends upon the link with the man. You see, that's the point. Who dies? All who are in Christ, or all who are in Adam. Who lives? All who are in Christ. You see, everyone who is a natural descendant of Adam dies. Everyone who is a supernatural dependent or, or supernatural descendant of Christ lives. Which all you are in depends on which man you are in. If you are in Christ, you will live. If you are in Adam, you will die. The first all includes all who are in Adam by the common factor of sin. The second all includes all who are in Christ by the common factor of faith. So Adam was the first fruits of death. Christ is the first fruits of life. And I might add that the emphasis here is on the physical. We are born into this world already dead spiritually. The manifestation of that is that we die physically. When I come to faith in Christ, I come to life spiritually. But the ramifications of that is that one day I will actually rise physically to life. So Christ's resurrection assures our resurrection. He is the first fruits. You say, well, when is this going to happen? When will our resurrection take place? Look at verse 23. But each in his own order, and that word order means sequence. There is a sequence to resurrection. It doesn't all happen at the same time. But each in his order, Christ the first fruits, Christ is the first to rise. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Christ rises, and then after that, how long is the after that? What's well, coming up on 2,000 years. After that, who will rise? Those who are Christ. That's the condition of verse 22. And when will it happen? It will happen when Jesus comes back. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Our resurrection will happen when Jesus comes back. And Paul's point is that it's tied to the resurrection of Christ just as our death is tied 
to the sin of Adam. And I might add this, it is just as certain. It is just as certain that you are a sinner because you're in Adam as that you will rise because you're in Christ. Now let me just give you a mini theology on resurrection from this verse and some other verses. There are two resurrections. Jesus calls them in John 5, 29, the resurrection of life and the resurrection of judgment. The first resurrection, the resurrection of life, has four parts. Christ rose first. Secondly, the church at Christ's coming, as we just read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Thirdly, will be those who believe during the tribulation period and die, and their resurrection is described in Revelation 20, verses 4 and 5, and simultaneous with them will be a fourth group, and that is Old Testament saints, whose resurrection is promised in Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2. That's the first resurrection. It includes all believers. The second resurrection is the resurrection of judgment, and it occurs at the end of the millennium, which means the thousand-year reign of Christ, It's called the great white throne judgment, and we read about it in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. It says, the dead, small and great, will stand before the throne. This resurrection will take place, but it's not a resurrection to life. These people are raised physically, but they're still dead. And they will stand before the great white throne judgment, and the result will be, it says, that they will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. So those are the two resurrections. There is a sequence to them. Christ is the first fruits. We are the harvest. So the first point is very simple. What does Christ's resurrection mean to us? It assures our resurrection. Second thing I want us to see is what our resurrection means to Christ in verses 24 to 28. You see, not only does Christ's resurrection have an impact on us, But our resurrection will have an impact on Christ. And I want us to see this. Look at verse 24. He says, then comes the end. Now that word, the end, is the Greek word teleos. It means the completion, the consummation, the goal. What is the goal? What is the consummation? Look again at verse 24. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. Now, what is the kingdom? Well, the kingdom, simply put, the kingdom is the place where the king reigns. The kingdom is the territory where the king, Christ, reigns. Spiritually, he reigns in the lives of those who are surrendered to him as his subjects. Physically, He will return and reign with us for a thousand years on the earth. That's where you read verses in the Old Testament about the lion laying down with the lamb, where you read verses about little children playing with snakes, my little pet, Waldo, the boa constrictor, where there will be peace on the earth in the kingdom of God. You see, in the end, the earth will be like it was in the beginning. That's what the thousand-year reign of Christ is about. He's going to come back and establish what it should have been like for that thousand years. You know, Jesus came to recover and redeem and restore this lost world. 
And the final culmination will be when he hands it back to the Father. But notice, he has to do something first. Look at verse 24 again. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to, God, to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. All rule and all authority and power doesn't refer to human kings and rulers only. That's who we think about when we're intimidated. But behind them are the real powers and the real authorities. The Bible calls them the spiritual forces of darkness. It is Satan and his demons. They will be forever abolished, never again to oppose God or to deceive or mislead or threaten his people or to corrupt his creation. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That figure of under his feet comes from the common practice in ancient times of kings always sitting enthroned above their subjects. That's why I get up here on the stage, so you'll be under my feet. More literally, when a king conquered another king, he would often come to that defeated king, and he would actually put his foot on the neck of that defeated king to illustrate the fact that he had been conquered. Well, Christ will reign until every one of his enemies is subdued and abolished. And then notice verse 26. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. That's the biggie. Now, death was defeated at the cross, and the demonstration of that defeat took place at the empty tomb. In fact, Paul later in this same chapter will actually mock death in verse 55. He will say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? But death won't be fully abolished until the end of the millennium, when in Revelation 20:14 we're told that death itself will be thrown into the lake of fire. The kingdom of God in its finished state will have no death, and all of God's enemies will be subdued and abolished. You say, well, Dan, I'm a little lost on where he's going with this. I mean, what does this have to do with the subject of resurrection? Well, let me make it clear for you. God's kingdom isn't primarily about peace and tranquility and beautiful gardens with no weeds. God's kingdom is primarily about people. God's kingdom is about the subjects in that kingdom. And the people in that kingdom are dying off. I was thinking this week about all the people who have had an impact on my life. Many of them have already died. They're gone. They're not walking this earth anymore. God's kingdom is primarily about people, and people are dying. And since Luke 1.33 says his kingdom will have no end, guess what? His people will have no end. So Christ will not be able to hand over the kingdom to his Father until you rise again. In fact, for Christ to culminate his purpose in coming, you have to rise from the dead. 
And if you don't rise from the dead, then he failed in his mission. That's pretty good. Your resurrection is tied to the very mission that Christ came to accomplish, and he has said, one day I will hand the kingdom back to my father. You're part of the kingdom, and you will be alive when that happens. You talk about assurance of our resurrection. Now notice, Paul adds a footnote in verse 27, a rather obvious footnote. He says, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. That's a quote from Psalm 8. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. Now, what's he saying? He's just clarifying. When when it says that all things are put under Christ's feet, when it says that all things are subject to him, there is an exception to that, and that exception is God the Father. That should be pretty obvious. In fact, look at verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. Did you get that? When everything is under Christ's feet, he will still be subject to the Father. Now, let me add a little addendum here. Because this teaches us something very important about submission. Submission has nothing to do with equality. Christ is equal with the Father, and yet he is subject to the Father. And this verse tells me that he's not only subject to the Father when he was on the earth. He will be subject to the Father eternally, even though he's equal with the Father. Now, why is that an important thing to understand? Because you, as a wife, can be subject to your husband and still be equal with your husband. You can be subject to the leaders of this church and still be equal with the leaders of this church. Submission has nothing to do with equality. It's a role, not a measurement. So Christ, having accomplished the purpose for which he came, paying for our sins, conquering death, delivering the kingdom to the Father, he will then blend back into the Trinity with the outcome being, look at the end of verse 28, so that God may be all in all. This is really the ultimate purpose of God's plan, that he may be everything in everything, that he may be all in all, so that he may be glorified. But you know what? In order for God to be all in all, Christ must deliver over the kingdom. And in order for Christ to deliver over the kingdom, we must first rise from the dead. So you see, our resurrection has an impact on Christ. Our resurrection assures God's glory. You say, well, I'm afraid, you know, I'll end up in the ground somewhere or, you know, I might get destroyed in a plane crash. They won't even find my body. I'm afraid God's going to forget about me. God's not going to forget about you because your resurrection assures his glory. That's good. If a man dies, will he live again? He will if he's in Christ. 
Because if you are in Christ, you are inseparably linked to him. Christ rose as the first fruits, assuring that the rest of the harvest is going to come. We are going to rise as well. And when we rise, we will be Christ's love gift to the Father to bring him glory forever. So his resurrection assures our resurrection, and our resurrection assures his glory. Are you in Christ today? Because if you're in Christ, then I can state confidently today that you will rise from the dead. If you're not yet in Christ, you're still in Adam, and the only assurance you have is that like everybody else in Adam, you're going to die. I'm going to have the praise team come back. We're going to close singing together. If you're not sure that you can say today, I'm in Christ, I'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you about that. As we close by singing together, if you want to come down and talk, you come down and talk today about what matters most in this world your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you are a believer, let's rejoice today in the fact that God's resurrection is a group plan. And if you're in Christ, your resurrection is just as sure as his was. Let's stand as we close together.